Well, good morning. Uh, I do want to begin by giving my thanks to uh, Paul on behalf of the elders when uh, he asked a little while ago if I would consider preaching uh, this Sunday, and I was more than happy to and uh, glad to be able to share with you from Psalm 23. So I'd encourage you, if you've got a copy of God's Word, to, to turn to that scripture in your Bible. Some of you may not need to turn to it. It's entirely possible that you were raised in the church, you've grown up, you've been a Christian for a while, and, and this is a beloved uh, passage of Scripture, and you know this psalm, and, and it's, it's maybe perhaps one that you memorized uh, as, as a child or perhaps in your adulthood, but a uh, very, very familiar <clears throat> psalm to us, the 23rd Psalm. So I'd invite you to listen as I read through this, uh, or indeed, simply, uh, if, you haven't, if you know it so well, Why not just close your eyes and let the word of God wash your soul? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would be the one who would teach us from your word. We recognize that what we seek and what we need is a word of life. We do not need good advice, though it can be helpful. We do not need good illustrations and stories. We do not need even good songs. What we need is a word from the Lord. Lord, sometimes that comes through a song. Sometimes it comes through a word of encouragement, but it always comes from the Bible. And so we ask that as we consider your word here this morning, we ask, O Lord, that you would be the one to guide our hearts ever deeper into your truth. Because we know when we do that, we draw ever closer to you. So Lord, guide us, lead us this morning. Take away any impediment or or distraction that might have come in with us, that we might set those aside. By the power of your Holy Spirit, hear what you have to say to us this morning. We ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, some of you may be uh, note takers. Uh, If you are, then I've, to some degree, have tried to help along um, by using PowerPoint Uh, This is just the way I do things. This is not a criticism of those who don't use PowerPoint in their sermons at all, so please, you know, don't. This is not a subtle text for, oh, here, do this. This is just the way I work. And really, it's my wife's fault. I want to blame her right off the bat. Um, She's a note taker, and she loves order and structure, and so this is my attempt to obey my wife. Um, So at any rate, as we begin looking at Psalm 23, the first point is the vulnerability of our situation, the vulnerability of our situation. As I was looking at Psalm 23 uh, this week and thinking about it and, and uh, thinking about how to, how to preach this text, how to approach this text, I was reminded of an experience that I had some years ago uh, when I was working in another part of the country. And, and a number of us uh, at that time would get together and have lunch. We would sit at this table and just enjoy, you know, bring our lunches and just enjoy conversation. And uh, it was in a room where on one of the walls there was a picture, and and we didn't really pay too much attention to it. It was a print, nothing particularly exciting, wasn't famous or anything. And one day while we're at lunch, we're we're chatting away, and one of the guys in the group says, points to the picture and, and asks each of us and says, who do you identify with most in that picture? 
Okay, and it was a picture of, I would imagine, 18th century life. There were covered wagons and horses and, and uh, men and women and children and some people who looked a little more, you know, like they were in charge of something because of their dress and, you know, don't know a lot about 18th century clothes, but it sort of looks like they were in charge. And so we stared at it for a bit and we talked about it. You know, each one said, well, I think I identify here, I identify here, I identify here. And when, so then we turned to him and said, so who do you identify with? And he said, well, I identify with the artist. We thought, oh, smarty pants, you know, there all we are looking at the picture and there you are thinking about this abstract idea. Uh, <clears throat> and, and so it was interesting though, because when he said that, it immediately occurred to me, this is really interesting. You know, we are all looking at what is obvious, what is explicitly there. You know, there's, there's covered wagons and horses and people and all the rest of it. We're looking at the obvious. And what he was doing was thinking about what was more implicit, what was a little less obvious, the artist. And the reason that that came to me, I think, is because as we read Psalm 23 and we think about the Lord, the, the, the Lord is my shepherd, this really well-known, famous psalm, we, we have a tendency to jump right into it, maybe because we know it so well. And maybe that's how we, we read other psalms. I don't know, but we jump right into it. We think, okay, the Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean? I shall not want. What does that mean? We're immediately in the obvious, which is not a bad thing. And this morning, we'll take a good look at the Lord and what it means for him to be our shepherd and so forth. But sometimes we also need to pay attention to the implicit. And the implicit is this. When David wrote Psalm 23, he wrote Psalm 23. He wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, what's implied there? What's implied is he's a sheep. And as we read this, and, and it's, it's, it's now in Scripture for us to read, as it were, along with David as he, was, as he wrote it, I think we are also being implored to say, pay attention if the Lord is my shepherd, if you're going to read this, if you're going to use this as, as the living word of God and you're going to see what it's doing, then you have to recognize then your posture, your position, the way you come to this text is as a sheep. If you're going to say the Lord is my shepherd, you have to understand where you, where you fit, as it were. And so this posture, that, that Psalm 23, we need to begin with a certain posture, and that posture is one of vulnerability. That's why I'm, the first point is the vulnerability of our situation. Psalm 23 is, is, is encouraging us, perhaps even demanding us, demanding of us, the readers, that we approach it in a particular way. And when we approach Psalm 23... In this way, in this mode of vulnerability, of need. After all, let's, let's be honest, sheep are vulnerable. I don't know a lot about sheep. I've never been a shepherd. I have seen shepherds in the fields. I have seen sheep. Um, we were just talking this, this weekend with some people, and, and uh, there was a t I was just describing what I call the golden years. The golden years were when we lived in Scotland, and I could see out the window the pasture lands and the, the, the sheep and the lowing and the, you know, and the, and the cows, and all. it was wonderful. Wonderful time. You know, there it is, just fantastic. And there's those shoes. So I've, I've seen them. I know what they're like. But I know they can't defend themselves. You know, they have teeth, but the teeth aren't sharp. They have hooves that don't really do a lot. It's not really a claw. <laughs> and of course, you know, they think, well, the sheep can run. Have you ever seen a sheep run? <laughs> it doesn't go very well. Especially if they've got all the wool. They're sort of hobbling along, you know, doing whatever they can. So a sheep, by very nature, has no self-defense. A sheep, by very nature, has no, it needs somebody to provide for it. It needs somebody to protect it. it needs, and this is, this, is how, this is how we begin Psalm 23. And when we begin in this manner, with utter vulnerability and need, that is when we recognize that Psalm 23 for us becomes good news and not just good advice or a good story or a good poem. I mean, it's good advice, nothing wrong with it. It can be helpful, but eventually... 
it sort of goes away. Life changes. It doesn't work anymore or it doesn't apply anymore. A good story can inspire you. A good story can be something that stays with you. And you, you tell it again and again, but, you know, in certain moments, the story isn't enough. You see, good news is what can actually transform your life and heart when it's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it's the good news of God's message of redemption, when it's the good news of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Because when we take up that posture of vulnerability and we read Psalm 23 like that, then we realize that all of this applies to us. You see, if we reject that vulnerability right off the bat and say, no, no, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm here, I've got it, I'm okay, and it's Sunday morning, none of you are saying that, but by Wednesday, you might be. And you, of course, you wouldn't be saying it out loud, would you? But maybe in the way in which we live our lives, maybe in the way in which we do our work, maybe in the way in which we operate, we are implicitly saying, yeah, I've got this. And Psalm 23 is saying, no, you don't got this. Psalm 23 is saying, you're the sheep. And when you approach Psalm 23 in this way, indeed, when you approach all of Scripture in this way, you are accepting your vulnerability, and that means you're able to receive all the good news that God has to tell you. So we begin Psalm 23 with understanding the vulnerability of our situation. Second, we see in Psalm 23 the intimacy of God's care. The intimacy of God's care. You look there in your, in your Bibles. <clears throat> if yours is anything like mine, reading from the ESV, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord there is in small caps. Now, if memory serves, I think Paul or, or Randy or someone has, has, has mentioned this before, and it may have been mentioned um, you know, in years past, I don't know. But when you see Lord in those small caps, that's identifying a particular name for God. You know, sometimes in Scripture you read God, and you know, this sort of, that's a generic name for God. But there is a particular name that God revealed about himself to specifically Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Now this name Lord <clears throat> is also can be translated, there's a meaning to it, it's, it's often translated I am which is really interesting, and, and in fact, uh, I think it was, was it last year, uh, I think uh, we went through the Gospel of John, and we saw there are five I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus specifically saying, I am, I am, I am, he's identifying that as this name. He's saying, I am the same God who spoke to, the same God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush uh, out in the middle of the wilderness is Jesus, the I am of John's Gospel, and indeed, all the Gospels, the entire Gospel. But when we go and we read Exodus 3.14, we realize, he, we see, here's God giving this name to Moses. What's the context? Because I think there's a little bit more. I don't disagree that God's name means I am, but I think it stops short. And the reason I think it stops short is because the context. Now, think, if, if you don't know Exodus 3 very well, let me just remind you that Moses is this guy who, who uh, you know, carries on with life and things don't go well in Egypt, so he leaves and runs away because of some bad things that are going on, and, and he's out in the middle of nowhere. Interestingly, he's a shepherd. Here's this shepherd looking over sheep, and the Lord comes to him. And what does the Lord say in the burning bush? The Lord says, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, I want you, Moses, without an army, without a diplomatic corps, Without anything else, I want you to go to the man who is the head of the superpower of the world today and tell him, let my people go because we're leaving. I don't know about you, but not kind of the encouraging word you're hoping for. <laughs> I mean, if you were asked to go to a world leader, any world leader today, it doesn't have to necessarily be a superpower, but if, if you were asked to go to a world leader and say to that world leader, <clears throat> here, this is what's going to happen. 
all of these people, we're just going to move them out no matter what you want or what you say. It's going to happen because God's going to make it happen. You may think to yourself, okay, rubber meets the road faith here. Do I really, is this, cause is, is this going to go well for me or not? Will I be imprisoned? Will I be killed? Well, I don't know. So Moses is in this moment of being told, go to the leader of the greatest superpower in the world in his day and tell him, you're basically nobody and my God's going to move our people out. I'm going to lead them. You good with that? And Moses is, you know, he gives his excuses, but, 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 but. And in the midst of those excuses, he says, Moses, I am. And I don't think he's just saying I am in the sense that I'm always, you know, always here or that I'm unchanging. Those, those things are true. I think he's saying, Moses, I am the God who provides exactly what you need when you need it. I am always with you. It's not a question of, oh, I, I think I can be there. My calendar's free. I've got a moment. You can sort of count on me sometimes. Now he's saying, I am always going to provide for what I call you to do, always. So in a way, I think this name also speaks of this incredible intimacy of I am with you and the manner in which I am with you is to provide for you and be with you and support you and love you. And I will never stop doing that because it's always an I am, not I will be down the road maybe, or yeah, I have been, but I'm a little busy right now. It's perpetually in the present. And I think it's wonderful how we see this working out in Scripture, <clears throat> even beyond the 23rd Psalm, because we see that this is who Jesus is, right? When Jesus is born, what's the name that's given to him? Emmanuel, God with us. This I am is the I am who, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says, he who was rich laid aside all of his wealth. He became poor so that we who dwelt in poverty might become rich in him. This is the God who is with us. We also read in Scripture that <clears throat> he is the one who laid aside, Jesus is the one, the Son of God is the one who laid aside his glory and took the form of a servant, and he died on the cross and rose again for you so that you might know eternal life, his life for yours. I not, it's not just I am. I am there to provide for you at every moment, always, never missing a beat, never failing. So you see, there's an intimacy here with God and his people. I am. And it's wonderful to think he is my shepherd. The Lord, this I am, this provision, he is the one who is my shepherd. And this brings us to the third point. We not only see the vulnerability of our situation, the intimacy of God's care, but the sufficiency, the sufficiency of God's provision. And you'll see, you'll notice there in that first verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or as some translations have it, I shall lack nothing. It means the same thing. I'll lack absolutely nothing. Now, if you're, if you're in the moment and if you're in that place of just rejoicing in who the Lord is, this Lord, this God, I am with you. I am providing for you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I am Emmanuel, God, with you. I am the one who is supplying your need. I am there. And you're in the wonder of that, that and the joy of that and thinking, he is my shepherd. I am the sheep. I am vulnerable, but he is protecting me. This is fantastic. And you read, yes. Yes, I shall not want, I'll never lack anything. And then it dawns on you, wait a minute. This has not always been my experience. There are times when I wonder, has the Lord, is he st are you still there, Lord? I don't know about you, but from time to time it's happened with me. Lord, are you really still guiding? Are you still, really, is this? Because, okay, 
I know, I'm not saying no, I'm just a little confused. Let's put it that way. I'm just a little confused right now, Lord. It's not, it's not coming together quite like I thought it was supposed to be. And so we might begin to think, oh, well, you see, that's why you can't trust the Bible. I lack nothing? Oh, yeah, well, I lack plenty, depending on your situation. But I, whenever you come to Scripture and you begin to think, oh, this is just idealistic nonsense, it's not actually true, keep reading. And you discover it's not idealistic nonsense. It is, in fact, very true, always true, the promises of God that never fail. And so what do we see? We see the sufficiency of God's provision and that we will not lack anything. And the first thing we under <clears throat> understand here is that we will not lack rest. We will not lack rest. Verse 2, he makes me <clears throat> lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now, I want to ask you a question. When are you most at rest, especially when you're outside? Now, my family and I, we moved here about a year ago. And one of the questions we wrestled with was, we're really moving to a place that actually has scorpions? <laughs> this may not seem the brightest idea. <laughs> we called people we knew. Have you seen any? Oh, yeah. Well, you do? <laughs> How could you go outside and just rest, lie down? There aren't so many green pastures around here, so not as much. But anyway, well, you find a green pasture. You find one of these, these water reservoirs, <laughs> pools that you know, Randy was talking about. And you're like, how do you feel totally at ease? You're not worried about a thing. Well, you can do that when you're free from fear. When you have no fear that somebody's going to come along and run over you, Someone's going to, you know, miss you and stop, step on you, or that the creepy crawlies are going to come out of nowhere and attack you in a sort of horror movie kind of thing. Well, how, does, how do you arrive at that? Well, you arrive at that, I think, how do you get rid of that fear is when you have someone with you who you trust who is watching over you. And that person is not the sort of person who's going to play a practical joke on you just because it's funny. Oh, let's put a tarantula right here. It's okay. <laughs> this is not a good friend. You know, move on. Um, <laughs> You know, you, when you trust that someone is there, they're always there, they're always watching out for you, they're always protecting you, and they're never far away. They don't disappear, they don't fall asleep. And you trust them. Then you know you can lie down anywhere, any green pasture, any area beside a, a river or a creek or whatever, still waters, and just rest. And you see, this is precisely what Psalm 23 is saying, is that when we are <clears throat> in the presence of the Lord, when we are mindful of this and we know this and we are trusting him, we can rest. Now, someone may say, yeah, but I find it really difficult. I mean, it's kind of hard to rest in the Lord sometimes. It is never difficult. It is, it is, when, we, when we recognize the difficulty of resting with the Lord, it's never because the Lord has disappeared or failed. It's always because we've begun to doubt. Uncert we've allowed uncertainty to creep in. And we're just not in his presence like we should be on a regular basis. We're not there in the word. We're not there in prayer. <clears throat> when we're not doing those things, then we're less trusting because we are in less communication and less aware. While I was pastoring uh, the church I was at in, in North Carolina, I discovered over time as I would meet with different guys in the church that so often... When they got to trust me and recognize, okay, I can, I can kind of admit some things to you, it's amazing how often the thing that they all wanted to admit was, you know, I used to, a long, long time ago, be somebody who was careful daily to spend time in word and spend time in the prayer, and to spend time in prayer. But, you know, as my career took off and I got more successful and we had kids and we moved on and I moved up and I moved over and all these sorts of things, 
as busyness of life began to cram in, I began to pray less because I didn't have time. I began to be in the Word less because I just needed to be in a hurry. So to sort of assuage my guilt, I'd you know, put some, some Bible on in the car so I could at least cram some Scripture into me while I'm there and feel a little bit better. Say a quick prayer as I move on, but that's it. And, and they would admit with sort of heads hung, like, I just, I'm doing this all on my own strength, and I'm beginning to think this is a really bad idea. And it's amazing how quickly we can disconnect from the one who never leaves us or forsakes us. And then when we lack that trust, it's because we have allowed the busyness of life, that's one, one way anyway, the busyness of life to, to creep in. That's why I like Charles Spurgeon, 19th century preacher, who was asked about how he, how he, uh, how he, he works through the, the spiritual um, disciplines of grace. Things like prayer and reading and so forth. And he said, you know, I give myself an hour of prayer every morning unless it's going to be a challenging and busy day. Then I pray for two hours. I thought that was interesting because so many of the guys that I've talked with over the years, it's I give the Lord 10 minutes while I'm eating breakfast, but as I get busier, I give him less. Spurgeon understood the challenges of life need to be met with more, not less. Because that's when we need to know, I will not lack that rest. So we, we see that we will not lack rest when we are in the presence of God and, and living in that presence of God and mindful of it. Second, we will not lack guidance, verse 3. We see verse 3, we will not lack guidance. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Well, that sounds absolutely fantastic. Paths of righteousness, I'm all about it. Right living, right doing, right thinking. Great. This is a good thing. But again, if you're reading from the ESV as I am, and it may be the same in your Bible, depending on what version you're reading, do you see that there's, at least in mine, maybe it's the same in yours, at the end of verse 3, there's a space, and then there's verse 4. That shouldn't be there. The editors just decide to get a bit creative, do a little poetic sort of thing, and they leave a space, as though verses 1, 2, 3 are there, then pause, okay, now we're going to do something different with verse 4. It's not how it goes. Verse 4 is connected to verse 3. So when we read, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, you carry on right into verse 4, even though, even when, I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. You see, the picture here is, yes, paths of righteousness are sometimes wonderful paths by green pastures and still waters, and we are learning of the Lord, and we are enjoying the Lord's presence, and all is going well. And then we think that there's this other path called the valley of the shadow of death or going through deep darkness, and they are different paths. Sometimes I suppose they could be, but sometimes they are the same path. That the path of righteousness that he brings us through for his name's sake actually passes through the valley of the shadow of death. And that's the experience of so many believers. And I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you this question. Have you ever felt... God-given hopes have been dashed by God-ordained experiences. I'll ask that again. Have you ever felt that God-given hopes have been dashed by God-ordained circumstances or experiences? You know the story of Joseph? Some of you, many of you may know that story. This is, this is basically the story of Joseph's life, right? 
Joseph begins as a 17-year-old kid. He has this dream in which he sees, you know, through imagery, mom and dad and all my brothers bow down to me. Sweet. <laughs> and then he has another dream. It's the same dream, different imagery, but the same thing. Mom and dad and all my brothers bow down to me. This is fantastic. He's got a God-given hope. God has given them this hope that somehow this is going to... He doesn't know what this means. Nobody knows what this means, but he has it. Then what happens? His brothers sell him into slavery. And then he gets sold into the house of Potiphar. This is like, here we have... God is still in control of all things. God's not the one who sold him into slavery, but God is in control of all things. And by God-ordained situations, he finds himself in slavery. But then the hope starts to come back because it goes well. He rises up in Potiphar's house. Everything is fantastic. He's over Potiphar's house. It's really good until Potiphar's wife essentially stabs him in the back. And now he's in prison. Bam! God ordained circumstances. He's now back in the depths. Then he does really well in the the prison. God's favor is on him once again. Then he thinks he's going to get out. But then the guys who could help him out, they forget about him. Back down again. Then finally, he is brought into the presence of Pharaoh, and he's able to help Pharaoh and deal with Pharaoh and answer God, you know, what God's uh, word is to Pharaoh. And he ends up being prime minister of the entire nation of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. Joseph had to go through some real ups and downs to really understand what it was that God was doing to bring him to fulfillment of the God-given hope. In fact, I would argue that God couldn't, you may want to disagree with me here, God could not fulfill what, what, what he was going to do in Joseph in the manner and character in which Joseph lived when he was 17. He wasn't ready for it. He had to bring Joseph through the paths of righteousness that from time to time went into the valley of the shadow of death so he could bring about on the other side a man who is no longer uh, entitled, a man who is no longer self-righteous, a man who's no longer happy to tell everyone, you're going to bow down to me. Isn't that awesome? He had to bring him to the place where he recognized, no, the only thing that's awesome is that I live in the presence of God and I seek him every day. That's good enough for me. And whatever he may do, it's okay. Because he is the good shepherd who in all of this is shaping me and forming me into the image of what he wants me to be, all for my good. We see this not only in scripture, we see it in real life. Elizabeth Elliot, you may know the name, Elizabeth and Jim Elliot were preparing for missions. This is about 60 odd years ago, 70 years ago, preparing for missions, really excited to go. Off we go. This is awesome. They have people behind them. They have people praying for them. Their heart's desire, both of them, is to reach the uh, unreached people groups, to reach a particular tribe that has knows nothing of the gospel. They move. They, they put their, 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 everything. They've, they've sold everything. They've moved. They've gone. And what happens? Jim goes off. Her husband goes off with a friend and make that first contact with the tribe. And what happens? They kill him on the shore. He's dead. And Elizabeth is left saying, wait a minute, I thought we had a God-given hope. It seems as though there's some sort of God-ordained activity or God-permitted activity or something. What in the world? How did Elizabeth Elliot get through that? She's written lots about this. How did Joseph get through this? How did so many people get through this? The answer is in verse 4. You are with me. You are with me. The presence of the Lord changes everything. You know, it's interesting. uh, The the details of this are a bit fuzzy because it's sort of coming to my mind. But recently I heard a man I know preaching on a completely different text. One of the illustrations he talked about was a man who, this was some time ago, had been shipwrecked. 
and was left on an island. It's almost like the joke, you know, what do you take if you were shipwrecked on an island or whatever? And it, wasn't, it didn't go so well for him. He died on the island because there was no food and no fresh water. But the one thing he had was a pencil, and he dried out his journal, and he continued to journal. So we know everything that happened after he arrived on that island until the day he died. And on the day he died, his final entry in his journal was, rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord. I beg your pardon? You have spent however long there, no friends, no hope it would seem, nothing on an island with zero, and you're dying, and your last dying breath, as it were, the last thing you can write with your pencil on this thing is rejoicing in the presence of the Lord? Because he had discovered the same thing that David did. All that matters is the presence of God. All that matters is that I'm in communion with him. And so much else comes into focus. You see, because he does guide us. He does lead us. He does provide for us in ways that we often wouldn't necessarily like. And that's why I think when we think about what does it mean to have courage as a Christian, I think Christian courage is continuing to follow God's lead even to places you do not want to go. That's courage. To follow God's lead even to places you do not want to go. It may be a geographical place. It may be a job place. It may be just a place in your own heart. It may be a place in your own family, in your own neighbor. I don't know, but he is leading you somewhere. And you may be saying no. But that's where we need to recognize that he is leading us there. Why? Because he is providing the guidance we need in order to become the people he is calling us to be. So we will not lack guidance. We will not lack protection. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I think it's interesting here, <clears throat> here that David does not do what I wish he would. When, he gets to, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have some words with David about how he wrote this. He writes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for, now, if it's me and I'm writing this, for the Lord has shown me the rest of my future, and so I can rest in the fact that I know what's coming. <laughs> I wonder if you've ever felt that way. Lord, could you just show me a little more? That would be helpful. David doesn't write that. You see, David is content in the valley of the shadow of death, of all places, the valley of the shadow of death, not knowing the next step. It is sufficient that he knows that he's holding God's hand. He's holding God's hand. And that's all that he needs to know. You see, <clears throat> I think Psalm 23, someone might say, well, Psalm 23 is this beautiful psalm because we see David drawing closer to the Lord. And to some degree, that's true. But I think the real truth of Psalm 23 is not that David is drawing closer to the Lord. I think the real truth is that he's beginning to recognize how close the Lord already is. He's my shepherd. He's the Lord, the I am, the I will provide, the I am providing. And I am never stopped providing. It's not good grammar, but it's good theology. See, we will not lack protection, even through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because God reveals himself even there. And that's what David's discovering. It's not that I am desperately on my own, trying desperately to get close to the Lord. I'm recognizing and seeing how close he always is. And I think that's the wonder and the joy of spending time with the Lord day by day, morning by morning, evening by evening, as you pray and as you're in his word. 
It's as though to some degree the scales are slowly falling off, falling off and you begin to realize, no, I'm not grasping for the Lord. He already has me in his hands. And even though it is difficult in this time or whatever you, maybe you're going through, maybe it's a great time, it's a good time, it's a good season of life, you begin to realize it's he who is holding me. And it's wonderful that he's doing this because he's protecting me as he goes. So we see that we will not lack rest. We will not lack guidance. We will not lack protection. And fifth uh, or fourth, we will not lack provision. Verse 5. You have prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. We don't have time to pause over this really, but <clears throat> this is not provision on the go. My boys, all three of them, work <clears throat> at Panera Bread. I'm not endorsing Panera Bread, but it's delicious. They all work at Panera Bread, and one of them, who would probably not want me to name this, but Oliver, did I say that out loud? Sorry. Uh, <clears throat> he works in the drive-thru oftentimes, loves it. That's, that's provision on the go, isn't it? People are sort of tangentially kind of getting close to the building just long enough to catch the meal. I don't know if he throws it or not, but anyway, catch the meal, and off they go. That's, that's provision on the go. That's okay, fine, whatever. But how much better when somebody actually takes the time to set a table before you? When they invite you into their home and the, the table is set with you, maybe there's a runner, maybe there's a, a tablecloth, maybe there's silverware out, maybe there's flowers on the table, maybe there's all kinds of stuff going on and you can smell the food and they've been laboring over it for a long time and deliver it and it's all presented very nicely and all the rest of it, you enjoy a wonderful dinner party as it were. And there you are gathered together and you realize this is not provision on the go, this is hospitality from the depths of another's heart. And what's being described here in Psalm 23 <clears throat> is not provision on the go. It is the hospitality of the Lord himself. And I think it's, again, ties back to verse 4. Sometimes that hospitality comes even in the valley of the shadow of death. In fact, I think that's partly what's, what's meant here. It says, you prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. You may still be in the midst of the darkness. You may still be in the midst of the deep. But the Lord prepares for you what you need. And he does so by keeping, as he does so, he keeps your enemies at bay. And that's why I think hospitality is so important, just as a kind of footnote. You know, sometimes when people are in the valley of the shadow of death, somebody might think, well, I'm not really sure what I can do. You know, I would like to do more. I'd like to do more. Recognize that when someone is in the valley of the shadow of death, sometimes a casserole is a feast. Because they're just in that place. It's what they need. And to minister to them in that way is to put before them, to, to copy the Lord in putting before them something you have prepared so that they might know peace in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. Finally, we see that we will not lack a future. So we will not lack rest, guidance, protection, provision. And then finally, we see that we will not lack a future. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't know if you are the sort of person who, who uh, writes in your Bible. <clears throat> you may think that's sacrilegious. If you do, forgive me. I scribble. You have my permission, not necessarily the elder's permission, so be careful what I say. My permission when it says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. You can either cross out follow or put brackets around it and above it write pursue. The vast majority of scholars agree this is best translated, not follow, because in English, follow has this sense of, yeah, it's sort of behind you, you know, trickling behind you. There it is. It's sort of there. You can look back. Oh, yeah, yes, it's back there. That's not the idea here. The idea here is pursuit. 
active, vigorous pursuit. And what is, what, what are you, what is God actively and, per, and, and vigorously pursuing you with? His goodness and his covenant-loving mercy. He is pursuing you with that. This is, he's always overtaking you. He is always right there. He is, I am the one who is always providing for you because I never let go and never stop. I never rest from pursuing you. And, and as, the, as the text says here, it ends with, I pursue you. How long does he pursue us? Until I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And if you want to, again, if there's one who writes in your Bible, you can underline dwell. That's, that's a fine translation, nothing wrong with it. But the, the text, it, it, it also includes the idea, and perhaps more accurately, of turning in. Turning in to dwell. That's why we have dwell here, but turning in. And I think what's going on in Psalm 23 is David is talking about the experience of life in a fallen world. <clears throat> the experience of life is you begin with the Lord is my shepherd and I'm a sheep. He is the one who provides and I'm the one who is vulnerable and needs everything that he can give. And he does. He gives me that good news and he guides me and he gives me rest and he protects me and he gives me provision. Even in the midst of a fallen world where, yes, I still need to go through some deep, dark places. But eventually the day will come at the end of my life. And what happens at the end of my life? It's not like so many in this world believe. That's it. It's all over. Darkness, you're done. It's finished. There's no more. He's telling us here, no, there comes a time when you do a turn. That's what death basically is. It's a turn. It's a turn to where? It's a turning into the house of the Lord for the rest of your life where there will be a table set for you evermore as you realize, I am here to celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb. The Lamb who gave his life for me. I think it's absolutely wonderful that in Scripture, Jesus is both the great shepherd and the Lamb of God. He knows both. That's why I said when, you, when we read that he will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death, it's because he's already been there. And I have no idea where it is that you are in your life right now. I have no idea of the difficulties, the challenges personally in your family and work and whatever it may be. Maybe it's something you've never even told anyone about. But don't forget, your shepherd is leading you and holding your hand, and he will not let go because he is the I am who provides. And he can lead you through the valley of the shadow of death because he knows the way, and he knows the way because he's already been there. He knows exactly what he's doing. And I simply close with this. You know, this is a wonderful psalm that can provide such incredible encouragement to us as we think about all the things that we will not lack, even in the midst of a fallen world and fallen hearts and all the rest of it. But who do you know who has no concept of this or experience of this? If all the prayers that you had prayed in the last seven days were answered right now, how many more people would enter the kingdom of God? Are you praying regularly and constantly <clears throat> for God to change the hearts of your neighbors, your friends, your family members? Are you praying that the Lord would lead you to, to that place where you can speak intelligently and at ease and with comfort and so forth, words of comfort and joy? To express to someone who may be in a certain place in life where you can say, let me tell you about the shepherd of my soul and how he's led me through whatever it may be. Just this past week, I received a newsletter from a friend of mine who's a former missionary to the Republic of Ireland from many, many years ago. And he's kind of, he's, he's retired now and he's gone back to Ireland to visit friends. And so I say it was amazing to read the things that were, were happening there and what he would, had experienced. But he did tell one story that caught my attention in relation to this. He he told the story of meeting up with a guy who's a pastor of a church. And the way the story goes is, over 30 years ago, 
My friend was doing what he did. He was doing evangelism door to door, just knocking on doors and telling people about Jesus. And he arrived at this one door and he talked to this couple. And over time, the, the, the wife was saved, but her husband was antagonistic. No, I have no interest. I don't care. Whatever. Don't tell me. Not, just no. Forget it. Well, she joined a small congregation in, in her town, and, and she asked them, would you please pray for him? I want, you know, obviously she wanted him to become a believer as well, and, and so they did. And one night, <clears throat> as they put things together later on, they realized one night, actually, while they were praying, he was at work. Now, I think it's interesting because he worked for a recycling company or a recycling uh, 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 business, which means essentially he was reading through. His job was to weed through the trash because people put stuff in recycling that doesn't belong there. So here's this stinky, smelly trash, and he's going through it to, okay, this, recycle this, no, not this. And as he was raised as a Catholic, so in some sense he didn't believe any of it, um, but he, he was raised and he had a certain sense of, of value, for, at least for the Bible, even though he didn't really believe it. And as he's pulling away the trash, as they're praying, what does he see? A Gideon New Testament staring him in the face. He thinks, well, that doesn't belong anywhere in the trash or the recycling. He picks it up, he puts it in his pocket, he just carries on. The people of the church continue to pray for him. He actually takes it out of his coveralls. You know, he's finished his day, pulls it out, and he pulls out this Gideon New Testament. He thinks, oh, well, it is the Bible. I suppose I should read it. He starts reading it and reading it and reading it, and the people are praying. Well, the man was saved. Then a few years later, he's called into ministry, and he's been the pastor of the church for 30 years. And the thing I love about that story, when I put it together with Psalm 23, is because someone prayed for him, a man was literally taken out of the trash and brought to green pastures. He was literally taken out of the rubbish in the midst of all, shall we say, the dung of humanity and the fallenness of this world, and he was brought by still waters. Who are you praying for? Who are you asking? And you're thinking to yourself maybe, yeah, but I don't know, so-and-so that I'm thinking about... <laughs> So-and-so I'm thinking about, whoever that may be, you know, that person, ah, they'll never come to faith. Nobody ever believed for a second that that man would come to faith in Christ. Thirty years later, he's pulled out of the trash and he's pastoring a church. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you that you would comfort us with this word. We pray that as we go from this place, you would continue to comfort us. But I also pray, O oh God, that you would continue to challenge us and your Holy Spirit would continue to bring to mind those for whom we need to be in prayer and those for whom we need to be actively seeking to share the gospel, to tell them of the shepherd of our souls, to tell them of his faithfulness, to tell, him that, to tell them that, that he, he provides everything. So, Lord, we pray that you would not only comfort us but challenge us. And I pray, Father, that as we go this day, you would be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.